We're continuing our perpetual reading of the Srimad Bhagavatam. We're taking up where we left off last at the second canto, chapter 6, which is called Purusha Sukta Confirmed. And we're taking up at text 40 to 41. I think that's what we did last time. You finished the sixth. Yes. You finished the sixth chapter. Well, that's good news. Yeah. So, on to seven. We would like to uh, restate that then. We're taking up the Srimad Bhagavatam at chapter 7, text number 1. Is that correct? Yes. It's correct. Thank you very much. This, is, this chapter is entitled, Scheduled Incarnations with Specific Functions. Lord Brahma said, when the unlimitedly powerful Lord assumed the form of a boar as a pastime, just to lift the planet Earth, which was drowned in the great ocean of the universe called the Garbhodak. The first demon, Hiranyaka, appeared, and the Lord pierced him with his tusk. Since the beginning of creation, the demons and the demigods, or the Vaishnavas, are always the two classes of living beings to dominate the planets of the universes. Lord Brahma is the first demigod in Hiran. Hiranyaka is the first demon in this universe. Only under certain conditions do the planets float as weightless balls in the air, and as soon as these conditions are disturbed, the planets may fall down in the Garbhodak Ocean, which covers half the universe. The other half is the spherical dome within which the innumerable planetary systems exist. The floating of the planets in the weightless air is due to the inner constitution of the globes and the modernized drilling of the earth to exploit oil from within is a sort of disturbance by the modern demons and can result in a greatly harmful reaction to the floating condition of the earth. A similar disturbance was created formerly by the demons headed by Hiranyaksha, the great exploiter of the gold rush, and the earth was detached from its weightless condition and fell down into the Garbhodak Ocean. The Lord as maintainer of the whole creation of the material world therefore assumed the gigantic form of a boar with a proportionate snout and picked up the earth from within the water of Garbhodak. Sri Jayadev Goswami, the great Vaishnava poet, sang as follows. Vasati dashana shikare dharani tabalagna Shashanika lanka kaleva nimagna Kesha badrita shukara rupa jaya jagadisha hare O Keshava, O Supreme Lord, who have assumed the form of a boar. O Lord, the planet Earth rested on your tusks and it appeared like the moon engraved with spots. Such is the symptom of an incarnation of the Lord. The incarnation of the Lord is not the concocted idea of fanciful men who create an incarnation out of imagination. The incarnation of the Lord appears under extraordinary circumstances like the above-mentioned occasion, and the incarnation performs a task which is not even imaginable by the tiny brain of mankind. The modern creators of many cheap incarnations may take note of the factual incarnation of God as the gigantic boar with a suitable snout to carry the planet Earth. When the Lord appeared to pick up the Earth, 
the demon of the name Hiranyaka tried to create a disturbance in the methodical functions of the Lord and therefore he was killed by being pierced by the Lord's tusk. According to Srila Jiva Goswami, the demon Hiranyaka was killed by the hand of the Lord. Therefore his version is that after being killed by the hand of the Lord, the demon was pierced by the tusk. Srila Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur confirms this version. The Prajapati first begot Suyagya in the womb of his wife Akuti, and then Suyagya begot demigods headed by Suyama in the womb of his wife Dakshina. Suyagya, as the Indradev, diminished very great miseries in the three planetary systems, upper, lower, and intermediate. And because he so diminished the miseries of the universe, he was later called Hari by the great father of mankind, namely Swayambhuvamanu. In order to guard against the invention of unauthorized incarnations by God, of God, by the fanciful, less intelligent persons, the name of the father of the bona fide incarnation is also mentioned in the authorized revealed scriptures. No one therefore can be accepted as an incarnation of the Lord if his father's name, as well as the name of the village or place in which he appears, is not mentioned by the authorized scriptures. In the Bhagavat Purana, the name of the Kulki incarnation, which is to take place in almost 400,000 years, is mentioned along with the name of his father and the name of the village in which he will appear. A sane man, therefore, does not accept any cheap addition of an incarnation without reference to the authorized scriptures. The Lord then appeared as the Kalki, excuse me, the Lord then appeared as the Kapila incarnation, being the son of the Prajapati Brahmana Kardama and his wife, Devahuti, along with nine other women, sisters. He spoke to his mother about self-realization, by which, in that very lifetime, she became fully cleansed of the mud of the material mode, modes and thereby achieved liberation, the path of Kapiladev. Purport. The instructions of Lord Kapila to his mother Devahuti are fully described in the third canto, chapters 25 through 32 of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And anyone who follows the instructions can achieve the same liberation obtained by Devahuti. The Lord spoke Bhagavad Gita and thereby Arjuna achieved self-realization. And even today, anyone who follows the path of Arjuna can also attain the same benefit as Sri Arjuna. The scriptures are meant for this purpose. Foolish, unintelligent persons make their own interpretations by imagination and thus mislead their followers, causing them to remain in the dungeon of material existence. However, simply by following the instructions imparted by Lord Krishna or Lord Kapila, one can obtain the highest benefit even today. The word Atmagatim is significant in the sense of perfect knowledge of the Supreme. One should not be satisfied simply by knowing the qualitative equality of the Lord and the living being. One should know the Lord as much as he as can be known by our limited knowledge. It is impossible for the Lord to be known perfectly as he is, even by such liberated persons as Shiva or Brahma, so what to speak of other demigods or men in this world. 
Still, by following the principles of the great devotees and the instructions available in the scriptures, one can know to a considerable extent the features of the Lord. His Lordship Kapila, the incarnation of the Lord, instructed his mother fully about the personal form of the Lord, and thereby she realized the personal form of the Lord and was able to achieve a place in the Vaikuntha Loka, where Lord Kapila predominates. Every incarnation of the Lord has his own abode in the spiritual sky. Therefore, Lord Kapila also has his separate Vaikuntha planet. The spiritual sky is not void. There are innumerable Vaikuntha planets. And in each of them, the Lord, by his innumerable expansions, predominates, and the pure devotees who are there also live in the same style as the Lord and his eternal associates. When the Lord descends personally or by his personal plenary expansions, such incarnations are called Amsha, Kala, Guna, Yuga, and Manvantar incarnations. And when the Lord's associates descend by the order of the Lord, such incarnations are called Shaktivesh incarnations. But in all cases, all the incarnations are supported by the invulnerable statements of the uh, authorized scriptures, and not by any imagination of some self-interested propagandist. Such incarnations of the Lord in either of the above categories always declare the Supreme Personality of Godhead to be the ultimate truth. The impersonal conception of the Supreme Truth is just a process of negation of the form of the Lord from the mundane conception of the Supreme Truth. The living candidates by their constitute by their very constitution are spiritually as good as the Lord, and the only difference between them is that the Lord is always supreme and pure without contamination by the modes of material nature, whereas the living entities are apt to be contaminated by association with the material modes of goodness, passion, and ignorance. This contamination by the material modes can be washed off completely by knowledge, renunciation, and devotional service. By what? Nice. Devotional service to the Lord is the ultimate issue, and therefore those who are directly engaged in the devotional service of the Lord not only acquire the necessary knowledge in spiritual science, but also attain detachment from material connection and are thus promoted to the kingdom of God by complete liberation, as stated in Bhagavad Gita 14.26. Even in the non-liberated stage, a living entity can be directly engaged in the transcendental loving service of the Personality of Godhead, Lord Krishna, or his plenary expansions like Ram and Nisringha. Thus, with the proportionate improvement of such transcendental devotional service, the devotee makes definite progress towards Brahma-gatim, or Atmagatim, and ultimately attains Kapilasyagatim, or the abode of the Lord, without difficulty. The antiseptic potency of devotional service to the Lord is so great that it can neutralize the material infection, even in the present life of a devotee. A devotee does not need to wait for his next birth for complete liberation. Namasreshtam manamapi sachiputra matra sarupam shirupam tasyagrajam uruparim aturim goshtavatim radha kundam kirivaramaho radhika madhavasham 
Everyone can move up by 6.2 inches, please. Oh, inches. You don't do inches here. 6.2... What is it? Centimeters. Move up by 12.1 centimeters. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for coming to the perpetual reading of Srimad Bhagavatam. It was quite crowded at Naimasharnya also. Of course, there was more air at Naimasharnya. They were in the forest, in the forest. There's forest air, if you recommend it. We've got nothing against air. We have no moratorium on air. So, should I keep going? Tell me when you're settled. How do you go? Okay. So, in the beginning of the Bhagavatam, Sutta Goswami gives an important verse that relates to the message of this last purport, in which he says, Bejare muniyo tagre, Bhagavan tamad hoksajan, satvam bishudham shemaya, kalpante ye nutan iha. And that is that previously, You research team, are you in a good place? We're going to definitely need you. You can start by looking up the word invulnerable. Okay, so, Hare Krishna Jadarani, welcome. Good to see you. Bejare muniyo ta'agre. So, bejare muniyo ta'agre. The munis, previously, ta'agre, previously, uh, they worshipped bejare. I'll take it afterwards. Bejare Muniyotagre, Bhagavan Tam Adhoksajam. They worship the Supreme Absolute Truth, uh, who's uh, Vishnu, because Sattvam Bishudam Shemaya. Shemaya means because they could attain the highest benefit from worshiping Vishnu. As we heard in the last session, there, was, there are innumerable uh, aspects of the Lord, that is, his energies that one can worship. What were some of them, starting with the jinn? Jinn, and what else? That doesn't mean the drink, it means the, like a goblin or something. Satans. Then there's goddesses, gods, there's uh, manifestations of nature, and even a god of smallpox that somebody worshipped. Somebody probably mentions worshipped Hitler at a certain point because his business did so well under his reign. So living entities who get enamored of manner get overwhelmed by it and focus their attention there. However, Bhagavatam tells us how Shemaya, how to attain the highest good that we can possibly attain. And what is that? Bejre muneyotagre bhagavantamadhoksajam sattvam bishudham Shemaya. Vishnu is beyond the modes of nature altogether. He's uh, Shuddha Sattva. Kalpante ye nutan iha. Iha, even in this world, in our present situation, if we worship uh, Vishnu following what the sages did. In other words, what the verse is saying, previously these great liberated souls, very high-minded personalities, worship Lord Vishnu because 
they would attain the highest benefit. And then the verse goes on to say that anyone who follows in the footsteps of these sages is eligible for the same result. I may not be a great sage. I may be from any realm of the material world. However, if I follow in the footsteps of the sages, I become eligible, in this world, in this body, for the same result that they attained. So uh, this is the magic of the parampara system. And it is uh, the prerogative of any living entity at any time to decide that, yes, I will follow uh, Krishna. Uh, there may be some disgust with the material world, although that doesn't always do it in and of itself. Because as is pointed out by Narada Muni to Prajapati Daksha, or in the commentaries, when Prajapati Daksha had a dispute with Narada, does anybody remember what the dispute was? Yes, Prabhu? How many did he have? How many sons? The first batch was 10,000. He had 10,000 sons and Narada came along and uh, Prajapati Daksha had sent them off to do some yagyas. And then Narada came along and said, why waste your time? Just renounce the world and leave and be fully absorbed in Vishnu. And they left. And Daksha became extremely angry, but he then had a thousand more sons. And then Narada did it again. And then Daksha was furious and he had a conversation with Narada and said, if somebody doesn't get a chance to experience the material world fully, then how can they renounce it? And Narada said, ah, that doesn't make any sense because people all the time get experience in the material world and they still try to embrace it. So merely getting frustrated with the material world isn't enough. We also have to have the association of... Uh, those who are beyond the modes of material nature. And we also have to have a process to follow. This is called Satovrite. We have to know uh, what are the footsteps of the great souls and then follow in the footsteps of the great souls. And that assures our success in devotional service. As we heard the other day, Tvayam bujaksha kila sattvadami samadhi naveshi tachetasaike this was spoken by the demigods who were speaking, uh, praying to Lord Krishna within the womb of his mother. And they said that the prime goal of life is to fix one's mind upon uh, you, my Lord, with one-pointed attention. And he said, if... People follow they follow in the footsteps of the Mahat, the great souls who are already doing this. You do what they do. Follow the process they give you through disciplic succession. Then uh, you will be able to cross over the dangerous ocean of the material world as well. And so uh, we, we find in this um, Bhagavatam throughout, there's the invitation to follow in the footsteps of the great souls. Following in the footsteps doesn't mean to imitate. Because as Krishna says in the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam, sve sve adhikarya nishta sa guna parikirtita. To act according to one's level of qualification in the present moment is a good thing. 
He said it's a good quality. It's it's a it's an asset. Whereas viparyut dosha the opposite is a fault, and that is that if I try to do more than I'm qualified for, Bhaktivinoda Thakur then comments on this and says it's much like climbing a ladder to make advancement in spiritual life. If you try to run up the ladder, you might slip because you don't have your feet clearly on the rungs. But you should put a foot on a rung and get a steady foothold and then take the next step. And then he says, if you put your foot on the ladder and it's solid, but then you don't move up, he said, then your advancement will be distant. So just remember climbing a ladder when you're wondering, what should I do next? <laughs> you should climb, but don't run uh, unless you, you know that you can make it by running up. So um, the, uh, we'll go on reading from here, but uh, we should know also that just hearing about these incarnations, we may hear the, the summary of them, uh, we can uh, clear our path to complete liberation in this world because all the forms of the Lord are completely transcendental. And as mentioned in the first canto, third chapter, where there's a, a list of many of the incarnations of the Lord, of course, they're innumerable, as is mentioned, that they're like the waves on the ocean, you can't count them all. Many of them are listed. And just by remembering them, reciting their names, the names of the various incarnations of the Lord in the morning and the evening, one can become free from all material distress. If anybody was wondering how to get free from distress or stress or anxiety in this world, it's by hearing about Krishna and about the various incarnations who are completely transcendental. Does anybody have a, a reflection or a comment you want to make before we go to, into the next three verses? Anything you heard that stuck so far? Yes. Oh, great, we have an extra microphone, too. Full service operation here. Frustration. Yeah, frustration is the doorway to liberation. Because when we're frustrated, it's an indi indication that we're not part of this world. If we were congenial with the material world, then we wouldn't experience frustration because it's the result of the dichotomy between our energy and the energy of the, of the material world. So I was just saying that it's, it's not enough because uh, although it's helpful, we also have to have a ladder to climb. So many people get frustrated, but they don't know where to go next. Uh, although, you know, some people, Krishna says in, in the Bhagavad Gita, Chaturvidabhajante mamjana sukritino arjuna, arto jignasa artarti jnanicha bharatarshava, when very pious people who already have pious uh, intentions, uh, there, there are some scars in their heart, get frustrated, then they pray. And they say, please help me. I don't have any money. Please help me. I'm, I'm in distress. Please help me. I, I want to know the truth, and so forth. But um, most people need frustration, plus they need, as uh, we heard in the last purport, they need some jnana, and they need a process to follow also. So it, it, the, the two things uh, are helpful. Knowledge and practice are important for people to have to go along with their frustrations. 
Did you, had you finished your question? Was it complete? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think because you clarified that you said frustration is not enough. Yes. So I think that... It's helpful. It's, yeah. it's good, but we also have to have a place to go. Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Um, it's okay. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. So I think uh, Prabhupada mentions uh, really a nice comment where he says that the incarnations of the Lord has to be extraordinarily wonderful, which is beyond the imagination of tiny minds, of our minds. And, uh, and he also explains in the previous two verses of how the authoritative uh, Incarnations are mentions in the scriptures so that they are not being taken advantage by the unintelligent people and uh, false religions. And I had a, I had a question uh, which I was going to ask last time you couldn't ask, which was to do with when I was preaching in uh, to the Gujarati community, uh, they have one sect of the community where I was trying to establish that you have to refer to the scriptures for scheduled incarnations and the qualities and then you know you cannot manufacture somebody as an incarnation of God or a Supreme Personality of Godhead and one of the feedback that came back from them was uh, that these scriptures were written 5,000 years ago so at that time our God or the person that they believe is the Supreme Person had it incarnated so because he only came 200 years ago that's why he wasn't mentioned in the scriptures before and uh, and at some point, you know, I, I did try to encourage them to, to read Bhagavatam and then to one of my friends I even, even uh, gifted the Bhagavatam. But my question was, how do we establish the authority of the scriptures? Because we, you know, we, 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 we want to have the authority which is the scriptures. We said they are in, the, in, in our literatures, it's mentioned there. But when you come up with these arguments like this, uh, uh, you know, obviously the Bhagavatam and the other scriptures also predicts the future as well. Uh, so it was not just... Uh, but how do we how do we tackle those situations? Because yes, Maharaj. the um, the system of knowledge uh, in any discipline is uh, called epistemology. How do you know what you know? How do you prove what you know? And there has to be a given. There has to be a, a, a for instance in geometry, you start with a given and then you prove it. If somebody gives you uh, a geometry uh, situation and doesn't give you the gi given, then you, there's nothing to prove. There's nowhere to go from there. Uh, there's dogma in ev every uh, discipline of the world. Because dogma just means that you have to accept some previous conclusions that have come uh, from uh, research of others before you. Nobody in any uh, system of knowledge starts afresh and tests every conclusion that's there. This is one first important point, uh, uh, that knowledge systems, we're, we're not capable from our uh, perspective to test everything. And furthermore, you, uh, when, when you question everything, when you, when you don't stop at some point and say that there is an authority to go from, uh, then you get uh, what Socrates called or, uh, an infinite regress, Aristotle rather. And he said that uh, in, until you come to a, a, a proof that proves itself, you have to have that 
that saying this particular thing proves itself. It's self-evident, self-evident truth. And you take it as axiomatic. Uh, you don't have a philosophical system because uh, then you just have randomness. And infinite regress looks like this. I say water boils at 200 degrees and you say prove it. I bring a thermometer and put it in and we see the water starts agitating at two at 200 degrees, and then the person says, prove that's a real thermometer. And then I bring a thermometer testing kit, and the person says, prove it's a real thermometer testing kit. And back we go. So at some point, you, uh, he, uh, Aristotle said you have to have, uh, uh, like an army, it's not retreating all the time, it stays in one place. So. The, the Shastras are known as uh, infallible and self-effulgent. And they're apurusheya. They're not uh, created at some point by a person. So the, the idea of 5,000 years ago, it's just a point in time uh, when the eternal Shastras were being discussed. The Bhagavatam is eternal li literature. And that the sound vibration is eternal. It's always going on, but it appears at various times. And, in society. So uh, if somebody walks into a science class and says that, um, okay, um, I don't believe all these theories, then they, they're not going to, they're not suited for the class. They don't fit in uh, to the class. There has to be some acceptance of, of the premise you know, that it's based on. So the, the Srimad Bhagavatam is eternal literature and it's describing the, the various incarnations of the Lord, not from 5,000 years ago, but uh, from eternity. It's uh, continuous. Thank you, Mahan. Well, did that answer your question? Yes, yes. Okay, you want to expand upon it because you get the same... Uh, It's not just for the devotees in the room, but it's for the, a pe there's a lot of people online oh, yeah. and they can't hear the audience without the mic. Um, so just some uh, good questions because, um, so the Shastras, I think, you know, most would agree, it's, it's um, wonderful, but the interpretation, the, the translation, because uh, even in our movement, we've got um, what, what, whatever Shla Prabhupada has written, you know, the, you know, there's all the disputes whether that was the right translation, and that's where, how do we know uh, what works? Uh, which interpretation, because there's different translations of Bhagavad Gita. There's, well, there's no real interpretation of uh, Prabhupada's works. There's not been misinterpretation. There's been an editing process from the beginning that Prabhupada asked for. There's the Delhi Bhagavatam, for instance, and if you read it, you'll see that Prabhupada uh, used his second language, English, in translating it, and then he asked uh, those who knew English well to uh, edit for force and clarity and make sure that it was uh, up to a standard that could go into uh, the academy, like universities, and people would accept it. it. It's a long issue. I can go into it just as far as Prabhupada's books go. But as an example in history, the Bhagavad Gita has been watched over very carefully. It's not been changed at all, or what's called interpolated. There are other scriptures that have been interpolated. That is, over time, people have added something or subtracted something. But the Bhagavatam uh, has not. 
and also the Bhagavad Gita. Why? Because every um, Acharya has commented on these various literatures for thousands of years, and we can trace it back and see uh, what their commentaries are, and the, and the verses are all the same. They're not changed at all. Uh, Prabhupada didn't care so much for the translations. Uh, that It wasn't a big concern of his what the translations were. Most of them were taken from other places. His main point was about the purports that were being given. And there's certainly been no uh, uh, misinterpretations of you know, uh, that. And so, uh, one ha that, therefore, uh, you know, when you do have, when you're dealing with eternal scriptures, it's very important in a knowledge system to know of their efficacy. And we know very clearly that the, the Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, and other literatures, we have records of them. They've been guarded very carefully. Any slight variations in any of them are noted. You'll find a footnote, like one or two, every once in a while in the Bhagavatam. There's like a footnote that says, uh, some Acharya said there's this additional line somewhere. But that's about it. It's, it there's not a huge deviation in the, in the scriptures themselves. Interestingly, the, the, the Shruti is passed down through uh, mille over millennia by oral reception. And actually, uh, record shows that it was more accurate when it was passed down through memorization and, and repeating by people sitting in a gurukul and learning it. They had various ways that they memorized the, the verses. And actually, you know people from India, they're called Trivedi. Any Trivedis in here? And then some of them are uh, Vedis. And the, these uh, come from the tradition of the Vedas when people actually, you know, their family, yeah, we memorized three Vedas. Even Indra Dunamarsh was telling us how uh, once, uh, a couple decades ago, he was walking in Radhakund and he, he came around a corner and he literally bumped into a sadhu and he got down and offered his obeisances, apologized. And, Sadhu had a young man with him. It was an elderly person that he had bumped into. And this young man was telling Maharaj that actually this person knows all the Bhagavatam, all the Gita, all the Vaishnava scriptures. What do you mean he knows them? He, he's memorized them. And so Maharaj said, really? And he said, what about, you know, third canto, this part? And he just recited. And he kept asking questions and he, he tested him enough to, under, to feel, yes, he knew all of them. And Maharaj looked incredulously at the young man and said, how is this possible? And he said, different era. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the, the culture of, of uh, the Vedas was to preserve everything. Sometimes when it came into writing, in the Kali Yuga, people started to lose their environment in which they could actually take time to sit down and memorize the whole Vedas. And it had to be a pristine environment and so forth, and it was part of the culture. Even uh, the other night I was looking at uh, these ancient scriptures written by uh, somebody's grandfather who had copied the whole Srimad Bhagavatam by hand. And um, it was not uncommon. 
But my point was that sometimes in the scribes who would copy some of these scriptures, they, they, would, uh, they, they were illiterate. So they would sometimes make slight errors that would have to be corrected. So uh, sometimes, like on a morning walk, there was a, a there are questions sometimes from from Indology. It's a department where people study the history of the the Vedic culture, India, and so forth. And someone was saying, "But um, all these scholars, they're saying, well, Bhagavatam's only three thousand years old, or some say, uh, 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 you know, it's you're saying five thousand. And Prabhupada said that first you agree amongst yourselves and then you can come back and talk to us about it because they all have varying uh, ideas of, of, when it, of when it was written. But it, it, it's immaterial because it's an eternal, it's an eternal sound vibration that's there uh, since before the beginning of, of creation. It's always there. And so uh, that's the basis from which uh, all knowledge comes for the uh, process, uh, for, for, for actually in the Vedas, for all different categories of, of human knowledge. Okay. I'm going to read a couple more verses. This is uh, number four. The great sage Atri prayed for offspring, and the Lord, being satisfied with him, promised to incarnate as Atri's son, Dattatreya, Datta, the son of Atri. And by the grace of the Lord, excuse me, and by the grace of the lotus feet of the Lord, many yadus, haihais, etc., became so purified that they obtained both material and spiritual blessings. Transcendental relations between the personality of Godhead and the living entities are eternally established in five different affectionate humors, which are known as Shanta, Dasya, Sakya, Vatsalya, and Madhurya. The sage Atri was related with the Lord in the affectionate Vatsalya humor, and therefore as a result of his devotional perfection, he was inclined to have the personality of Godhead as his son. The Lord accepted his prayer and he gave himself as the son of Atri. Such a relation of sonhood between the Lord and his pure devotee can be cited in many instances. And because the Lord is unlimited, he has unlimited number of fathers, father devotees. Factually, the Lord is the father of all living entities, but out of transcendental affection and love between the Lord and his devotees, the Lord takes more pleasure in becoming the son of a devotee than in becoming one's father. The father actually serves the son, whereas the son only demands all sorts of services from the father. Therefore, a pure devotee who is always inclined to serve the Lord wants him as the son and not as the father. The Lord also accepts such service from the devotee, and thus the devotee becomes more than the Lord. The impersonalists desire to become one with the supreme, but the devotee becomes more than the Lord, surpassing the desire of the greatest monist. Parents and other relatives of the Lord achieve all mystic opulence automatically because of their intimate relationship with the Lord. Such opulences include all details of material enjoyment, salvation, and mystic powers. 
Therefore, the devotee of the Lord does not seek them separately, wasting his valuable time in life. The valuable time of one's life must therefore be fully engaged in the transcendental loving service of the Lord. Then other desirable achievements are automatically gained. But even after obtaining such achievements, one should be on guard against the pitfalls of offenses at the feet of the devotees. The vivid example is Hai Hai, who achieved all such perfection in devotional service, but because of his offense at the feet of a devotee, was killed by Lord Parusharam. The Lord became the son of the great sage Atri and became known as Dattatreya. To create different planetary systems, I had to undergo austerities and penance, and the Lord, thus being pleased with me, incarnated in four sanas, Sanak, Sanat Kumar, Sanandana, and Sanatan. In the previous creation, the spiritual truth was devastated. But the four sanas explained it so nicely that the truth at once became clearly perceived by the sages. The Vishnu Sahasranam prayers mention the Lord's name as Sanat and Sanatanatanam, Sanatanatama. The Lord and the living entities are both qualitatively Sanatana or eternal, but the Lord is Sanatana Tama or the eternal in the superlative degree. The living entities are positively Sanatana, but not superlatively, because the living entities are apt to fall to the atmosphere of non-eternity. Therefore, the living entities are quantitatively different from the superlative Sanatana, the Lord. The word sun is also used in the sense of charity. Therefore, when everything is given up in charity unto the Lord, the Lord reciprocates by giving himself unto the devotee. This is also confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita 4.11. Yeyatamam prapadyante. Brahmaji wanted to create the whole cosmic situation as it was in the previous millennium. And because in the last devastation, knowledge of the absolute truth was altogether erased from the universe, he desired that the same knowledge again be renovated. Otherwise, there would be no meaning in the creation. Because transcendental knowledge is a prime necessity, the ever-conditioned souls are given a chance for liberation in every millennium of creation. This mission of Brahmaji was fulfilled by the grace of the Lord when the four sanas, namely Sanat, Sanak, Sanat Kumar, Sanandana, and Sanatan, appeared as his four sons. These four sanas were incarnations of the knowledge of the Supreme Lord, and as such they explained transcendental knowledge so explicitly that all the sages could at once assimilate this knowledge without the least difficulty. By following in the footsteps of the four Kumaras, one can at once see the Supreme Personality of Godhead within himself, within oneself. To exhibit his personal way of austerity and penance, he appeared in twin forms as Narayan and Nara in the womb of Murti, the wife of Dharma, the daughter of Daksha. Celestial beauties, the companions of Cupid, went to try to break his vows, but they were unsuccessful for they saw that many beauties like them were emanating from him, the personality of Godhead. The Lord being the source of everything that be is the origin of all austerities and penances also. Great vows of austerity are undertaken by sages to achieve success and self-realization. 
Human life is meant for such tapasya with the great vow of celibacy or brahmacharya. In the rigid life of tapasya, there is no place for the association of women, and because human life is meant for tapasya, for self-realization, factual human civilization as conceived by the system of Sanatan dharma or the school of four castes and four orders of life prescribes rigid disassociation from women in three stages of life. In the order of gradual cultural development, one's life may be divided into four divisions, celibacy, household life, retirement, and renunciation. During the first stage of life up to, to 25 years of age, a man may be trained as a brahmachari under the guidance of a bona fide spiritual master just to understand that woman is the real binding force in material existence. If one wants to get freedom from the material bondage of conditional life, he must get free from the attraction for the form of woman. Woman or the fair sex is the enchanting principle for the living entities, and the male form, especially the human being, is meant for self-realization. The whole world is moving under the spell of womanly attraction, and as soon as a man becomes united with a woman, he at once becomes a victim of material bondage under a tight knot. The desires for lording it over the material world under the intoxication of a false sense of lordship specifically begin just after the man's unification with a woman. The desires for acquiring a house, possessing land, having children, and becoming prominent in society, the affection for community and the place of birth, and the hankering for wealth, which are all like phantasmagoria or illusory dreams, encumber a human being, and he is thus impeded in his progress towards self-realization, the real aim of life. The brahmachari, or a boy from the age of five years, especially from the higher castes, namely from the scholarly parents, the brahmanas, the administrative parents, the kshatriyas, or the mercantile or productive parents, like the vaishyas, is trained until 25 years of age under the care of a bona fide guru or teacher. And under strict observance of discipline, he comes to understand the values of life along with taking specific training for a livelihood. The brahmachari is then allowed to go home and enter householder life and get married to a suitable woman. But there are many brahmacharis who do not go home to become householders, but continue the life of naishtika brahmacharis without any connection with women. They accept the order of sannyas or the renounced order of life, knowing well that combination with women is an unnecessary burden that checks self-realization. Since sex desire is very strong at a certain stage of life, the guru may allow the brahmachari to marry. This license is given to a brahmachari who is unable to continue the way of naishtika brahmachari, and such discriminations are possible for the bona fide guru. A program of, of so-called family planning is needed. The householder who associates with women under scriptural restrictions after a thorough training of brahmacharya cannot be a householder like cats and dogs. Such a householder, after 50 years of age, would retire from the association of women and uh, as a vanaprastha to be trained to live alone without the association of women. When the practice is complete, the same retired householder becomes a sannyasi, strictly separate from woman, even from his married wife. Studying the whole scheme of disassociation from women it appears that a woman is a stumbling block for self-realization, and the Lord appeared as Narayan to teach the principle of womanly disassociation with a vow in life.
the demigods being envious of the austere life of the rigid brahmacharis would try to cause them to break their vows by dispatching soldiers of Cupid. But in the case of the Lord, it became an unsuccessful attempt when the celestial beauties saw that the Lord can produce innumerable such beauties by his mystic internal potency and that there was consequently no need to be attracted by others externally. There is a common proverb that a confectioner is never attracted by sweetmeats. The confectioner, who is always manufacturing sweetmeats, has very little desire to eat them. Similarly, the Lord, by his pleasure pot potential powers, can produce innumerable spiritual beauties and not be the least attracted by the false beauties of material creation. One who does not know alleges foolishly that Lord Krishna enjoyed women in his Rasalila in Vrindavan or with his 16,000 married wives at Dwarka. So this is uh, a very um, categorical and straightforward explanation of the way that the material energy works as explained in the, in the Srimad Bhagavatam the Pumsa Striya Maitu Nibhava Mitam Toyomito Shridaya Grantamahu Atogriya Kshetra Sutapta Vitar Janasya Moho Yamahamamiti. Do you have Home Depot here? We have Home Depot. It's a huge warehouse where you buy stuff to build your house. What's it called? IKEA is for furniture. But it will work. Kaikia and what else? BNQ. BNQ? Can you buy boards yeah, and nails there? Yeah. So it holds for all species of life. It's the... Once when I was in the New Delhi temple, I was staying in one of the guest house rooms, and I heard some commotion going on just outside my window. And I looked out, and there were two pigeons, obviously in love. And they were building themselves a little house on top of or underneath, I couldn't tell which, the air conditioning unit. And as I watched them through the window, I could see that they were jumping from the balcony, uh, go down, bring a piece of straw back from P&J, B&Q, and then they'd add it to their nest. And they're quite happy, cooing at each other, and you know, building a little house, because they're going to have uh, little baby pigeons at some point, and that, that was their, their place. So the, the Lord uh, Rishabhadeva explains this in a kind of a mathematical way. He says, There's attraction between male and female. Why? Because it's there in the spiritual world. There's what's called adiras. We have the Attraction between Radha and Krishna, that's the main attraction for everybody. Uh, the Madhurya Ras, where there's an attraction between Krishna and Radharani. And it's, it, that's because Krishna is the source of everything. Everything emanates from him. Therefore, we see that everywhere. Not just in uh, between uh, sentient beings, but also in non-sentient beings also. We, we see yin and yang everywhere. There, there are ways in which uh, the, the yin and the yang fit together. And that's because the absolute truth has this uh, rasa, 
called the Adi Rasa, and it pervades everything in the universe. However, when that gets translated into the material world, you get uh, the opposite result of what you get in the spiritual world. The attraction between Radha and Krishna in the spiritual world is the source of the highest pleasure because it's the Hladini Shakti. But when that same Shakti gets perverted by the material energy, which is really the intention to enjoy separately from Krishna, that's the false ego of thinking, I'm separate enjoyer and I'll enjoy separately, then everything gets perverted and you, you get Hlada Tapatraya, which means that what was most pleasurable in the spiritual energy becomes a source of the greatest misery here in this material world. That's a principle uh, that um, is brought up by Krishna even in the Bhagavad Gita in the 15th chapter where he describes Urdva Mulamadasha Kam Ashvatam Prahur Avyayam uh, that the, the, this material world is upside down. So the description here is clinical. It has nothing to do with um, not showing respect to every living entity, but the way the Varnashram system works is by categories. It's saying that there are categories of energies in this world and we have to, to manage them so that we, we don't become entangled by them. And the most entangling, as we just heard very directly in this particular purport, is the so-called relationship between men and women in this world. And I say so-called from a different perspective, and that is that we're not actually men and women. We're uh, masquerading as man, woman, child, adult, uh, cat, dog, salamander, mongoose, and so forth, but actually those, those uh, forms are external. And uh, the ultimate objective of the Vedic culture, as we just heard, is to uh, become aloof from uh, this bodily conception of life, which is epitomized by the attraction between male and female in the material world. Let's see if you have any reflections or questions. That was the third verse. And if you want me to expand on that anymore, in, in any way, shape, or form, please let me know. Or if you have another reflection or question. Go ahead. Um, yes? Prabhu. Thank you, Maharaj. I just wanted to reflect on uh, the story in the 11th canto of Kapot and Kapoti, when you mentioned about the pigeons, how they, the, the male pigeon, how he got married for children. Then finally, they caught by the hunter in the net, and then how they go, both gave up their life, the attachment to the family life. So I was just reflecting that um, if you could elaborate on that, our attachment to our family, our family life. Well, first of all, I'll say it, it's uh, important. Family life is important. The grihastha ashram is important, and having a relation, having um, healthy, balanced relationship between men and women and families uh, is vital. Because someone could then, uh, who's not ripe, 
for this. Take the uh, descriptions here and the perspective and then misapply it. And it's been done many times. That is misapplied. Uh, first of all, we have two aspects to our life. Vyavaharika, which means that we have to learn to live in the world. And the other is Paramartika, which means we have to be continuing towards our spiritual goal, the ultimate goal of life. These have to go on on parallel lines. So if someone says that, well, this relationship between men and women is troublesome, therefore I'll renounce it, then yeah, let's see you try. Because uh, these are a very um, ingrained in the hearts of all living entities. And it's natural for us to be attracted anyway. So it's, it's a process that requires uh, a step-by-step -step analysis of one's life and interaction by having healthy relationships on the Vyavaharika platform. We learn a lot, for instance, from the Grahasta Ashram. That is how to live together cooperatively, man and woman in a house together, and uh, at the same time cultivate spiritual knowledge. It's very important. And so, as we're, uh, as we're moving through life in a dual world where we're performing duties for our body and minds, which have to be done, even Arjuna, he was on the battlefield of Krukshetra, you know, he was the same Arjuna and he moved forward. Uh, he didn't renounce the world. Krishna never asked him to do that. He said, try enlightened engagement with the world. Uh, we also take the perspective of the Shastra, and you're not going to hear it from the New York, New York Times or the London Times, certainly not from the tabloids. Uh, this straightforward dissection of the various energies and saying that the, this is how it works. And so taking into this into consideration, the Shastra gives us the stories of uh, the pigeons, the, they come back one day and their little baby, uh, babies are caught in a net and then the mother flies into the net to save them and then she gets caught. And then the father's standing outside uh, crying and then the hunter shoots him with an arrow. <laughs> so the, the Shastra's very... Um, um, What's a good word? Penetrating. Penetrating? Yeah, it's good for an arrow going through a bird, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's very penetrating and also very straightforward in just informing us that this is our existential situation. So we have to be careful to balance and not say that, therefore, I'll just renounce the world because um, perfect renunciation of the world means to have an ever-developing perspective of the various categories of energy even as we live amongst them, even as we live in family life and use what we have in Krishna's service, including our propensity for men and women to live together and to have families and so forth, which is a vital part of any society, we, we also have a, a higher perspective simultaneously that gives us the wherewithal to not become fully in, encumbered by the... Uh, the sentiment that this is my family, these are my kids, this is my nation, and so forth. Because we all have to take a, a detachment pill, and that comes
in the form of these instructions, even as we're working in the world. Also does not preclude, uh, even though the, the Vedic culture is talking about the, the divisions between men and women, uh, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, who's giving us a kind of a summary of the teachings of the Vedic literature, Mamhi parta vyapashrita yepisu papa yoniya sriyovaishastatashudras tepi anti paramgatim. He's reassuring that nobody, including any category in this world of people who have various occupations or various bodies, is excluded from the opportunity to come to the to paramgatim, the highest level of spiritual realization. The, uh, the descriptions given here, as I say, are categorical because there is a material world and a spiritual world. Once I was uh, outside the New York Public Library distributing books with my friend, um, there was a woman coming out of the yoga studio and she said, you know, I know about your books because you talk about um, men and women and you say, uh, you know, the mixing and that like, women are not as like adept and, and for, for philosophy or something like that. And uh, my friend, I, she was handing me the book back and he said, no, actually, w these books say we're all female. And she said, really? And she took the book. <laughs> I was surprised. Uh, because ultimately our identity is that we're, we're all prakriti. We are uh, constitutionally female in the sense that we're meant to be enjoyed by Krishna. The external forms that we have now, these are superfluous and we find from the Bhagavatam we can follow the trajectory of, for instance, a man who leaves his body and then becomes a woman or a woman who uh, next becomes a man. And so the illusion that I'm a man or a woman is rampant in the material world and it's, it's the, the mainstay of material life and of BNR. What's BNQ. the story? BNQ. BNQ. <laughs> Does anybody else want to expand on this or ask another question or make a reflection? Yes. Yes, um, yeah, I just wanted to reflect on this also because in the purport it sounds quite easy as Prabhupada said, just some they just choose to not get married and just remain nice to come down channel. But like I see like according to statistics in our society, like the hugest percentage of all crime is committed by a young men who is not married. That's like the 80-90% of whatever like if it's like traffic related or drug related or violence, whatever it is, it's committed by single young men. So if there's something to this energy that needs to be like directed somehow or another, probably so just like one. Yes, and we can remember also that the Varnashram was in a context in which there were opportunities, as Prabhupada even mentioned here, for example, young men from a very early age to learn values. They lived in, in gurukuls and had a, um, developed this uh, service attitude. For instance, the, the brahmacharis go out 
and they beg on behalf of the spiritual master and they come back, they don't keep anything. And also, if the guru doesn't say, it's time for lunch, then they just, they don't go and say, hey, can we eat now? They just fast. Not that the guru would forget. Uh, but there's this uh, uh, sense of, uh, and you find it even when we, we see in gurukuls nowadays, where there are opportunities for people to live in a pristine environment, a, a spiritual environment, that they, they develop, develop the wherewithal to control their senses. So when we're talking about men and women, in the Vedic context, we're talking about ideal men and women who are uh, trained uh, from the very beginning of life. Otherwise, uh, you know, you talk about the difference between men and women when, and there are not that many uh, men who are trained with qualities where they can actually uh, support a family or uh, be a, a good partner, you know, in a relationship. Because it requires a training. Better late than never, however. And training that Prabhupada set up, you know, gave us at least an opportunity for many to come up to a higher standard spiritually, but the entire society really doesn't train young people that well. They sort of just um, let them intermingle and, and do whatever they want, and then by the time they're young men, it's no wonder that they would be inclined towards criminal activities. Should I move on? Yes. Everyone okay? Yes. All right. If there's anybody who wants to ask a question online too, feel free. Text number seven we're taking up. You're back just in time, Sri Dong. Thank you. Great stalwarts like Lord Shiva can, by their wrathful glances, overcome lust and vanquish him. Yet they cannot be free from the overwhelming effects of their own wrath. Such wrath can never enter into the heart of him, the Lord, who is above all this. So how can lust take shelter in his mind? Purport, when Lord Shiva was engaged in severely, severely austere meditation, Cupid, the demigod of lust, threw his arrow of sex desire. Lord Shiva, thus being angry at him, glanced at Cupid in great wrath, and at once the body of Cupid was annihilated. Although Lord Shiva was so powerful, he was unable to get free from the effects of such wrath. But in the behavior of Lord Vishnu, there is no incident of such wrath at any time. On the contrary, Brigamuni tested the tolerance of the Lord by purposely kicking his chest. But instead of being angry at Brigamuni, the Lord begged his pardon, saying that Brigamuni's leg might have been badly hurt because his chest is too hard. The Lord has the sign of the foot of Brigamuni Brigupad as the mark of tolerance. The Lord, therefore, is never affected by any kind of wrath, so how can there be any place for lust, which is less strong than wrath? When lust or desire is not fulfilled, there is the appearance of wrath, but in the absence of wrath, how can there be any place for lust? The Lord is known as Aptakama, or one who can fulfill his desires by himself. He does not require anyone's help to satisfy his desires. The Lord is unlimited, and therefore his desires are also unlimited. 
All living entities but the Lord are limited in every respect. How can they... How then can the limited satisfy the desires of the unlimited? The conclusion is that the absolute personality of Godhead has neither lust nor anger. And even if there is sometimes a show of lust and anger by the absolute, it should be considered an absolute benediction. Eight. Being insulted by sharp words spoken by the co-wife of the king, even in his presence, Prince Druva, though only a boy, took to severe penances in the forest. And the Lord, being satisfied by his prayer, awarded him the Druva planet, which is worshipped by great sages, both upward and downward. When he was only five years old, Prince Druva, a great devotee and the son of Maharaj Uttanapada, was sitting on the lap of his father. His stepmother did not like the king's patting her stepson, so she dragged him out, saying that he could not claim to sit on the lap of the king because he was not born out of her womb. The little boy felt insulted by this act of his stepmother, nor did his father make any protest, for he was too attached to his second wife. After this incident, Prince Druva went to his own mother and complained. His real mother also could not take any step against this insulting behavior, and so she wept. The boy inquired from his mother how he could sit on the royal throne of his father, and the poor queen replied that only the Lord could help him. The boy inquired where the Lord could be seen by great sages. Excuse me. The boy inquired where the Lord could be seen, and the queen replied that it is said that the Lord is sometimes seen by great sages in the dense forest. The child prince decided to go into the forest to perform severe penances in order to achieve his objective. Prince Druva performed a stringent type of penance under the instruction of his spiritual master, Sri Narada Muni, who was specifically deputed for this purpose by the Personality of Godhead. Prince Druva was initiated by Narada into chanting the hymn composed of 18 letters, namely, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. The Lord and Lord Vasudev incarnated himself as Prishnigarbha, the personality of Godhead with four hands, and awarded the prince a specific planet above the seven stars. Prince Druva, after achieving success in his undertakings, saw the Lord face to face, and he was satisfied that all his needs were fulfilled. The planet awarded to Prince Dhruva Maharaj is a fixed Vaikuntha planet installed in the material atmosphere by the will of the Supreme Lord Vasudev. This planet, although within the material world, will not be annihilated at the time of devastation, but will remain fixed in its place. And because it is a Vaikuntha planet never to be annihilated, it is worshipped even by the denizens of the seven stars situated below the Dhruva planet, as well as by the planets which are even above the Druva planet. Maharashi Brigu's planet is situated above the Druva planet. So the Lord incarnated himself as Prishnigarbha just to satisfy a pure devotee of the Lord. And Prince Druva achieved this perfection simply by chanting the hymn mentioned above after being initiated by another pure devotee, Narada. A serious personality can thus achieve the highest perfection of meeting the Lord and attain his objective simply by being guided by a pure devotee, who automatically approaches by dint of one's serious determination to meet the Lord by all means. 
The description of Prince Juva's activities can be read in detail in the fourth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. 9. Marashvena went astray from the path of righteousness, and the Brahmanas chastised him by the thunderbolt curse. By this, King Vena was burnt with his good deeds and opulence and was en route to hell. The Lord, by his causeless mercy, descended as his son by the name of Prithu, delivered the condemned King Vena from hell, and exploited the earth by drawing all kinds of crops as produce. According to the system of Varnashrama Dharma, the pious and learned Brahmanas were the natural guardians of society. The Brahmanas, by their learned labor of love, would instruct the administrator kings how to rule the country in complete righteousness, and thus the process would go on as a perfect welfare state. The kings or the Kshatri administrators would always consult the council of learned Brahmanas. They were never autocratic monarchs. The scriptures like Manu Samhita and other authorized books of the great sages were guiding principles for ruling the subjects, and there was no need for less intelligent persons to manufacture a code of law in the name of democracy. The less intelligent mass of people have very little knowledge of their own welfare, as a child has very little knowledge of its future well-being. The experienced father guides the innocent child towards the path of progress, and the childlike mass of people need similar guidance. The standard welfare codes are already there in the Manu Samhita and other Vedic literatures. The learned Brahmanas would advise the king in terms of those standard books of knowledge and with reference to the particular situation of time and place. Such Brahmanas were not paid servants of the king, and therefore they had the strength to dictate to the king on the principles of scriptures. This system continued even up to the time of Maharaj Chandragupta, and the Brahmana Chanakya was his unpaid prime minister. Maharaj Vena did not adhere to this principle of ruling, and he disobeyed the learned Brahmanas. The broad-minded Brahmanas were not self-interested, but looked to the interest of complete welfare for all the subjects. They wanted to chastise King Vena for his misconduct and so prayed to the Almighty Lord as well as cursed the king. Long life, obedience, good reputation, righteousness, prospects of being promoted to higher planets, and blessings of great personalities are all vanquished simply by disobedience to a great soul. One should strictly try to follow in the footsteps of great souls. Marjvena became a king undoubtedly due to his past deeds of righteousness. But because he willfully neglected the great souls, he was punished by the loss of all the above-mentioned acquisitions. In the Vamana Purana, the history of Maharaj Vena and his degradation are fully described. When Maharaj Prithu heard about the hellish condition of his father, Vena, who was suffering from leprosy in the family of Mlecha, he once brought the former king to Krukshetra for his purification and relieved them of all sufferings. Maharaj Prithu, the incarnation of God, descended by the prayer of the Brahmanas to rectify the disorders on earth. He produced all kinds of crops, but at the same time he performed the duty of a son who delivers his father from hellish conditions. The word putra means one who delivers from hell, called put. This is a worthy son. So what are your impressions from uh, having 
sat for several sessions over the last couple of weeks and uh, just listened to the Bhagavatam to some extent. How did it make you feel? Did you did it start off hard and then get easier, easier and then get hard? Was it easy all the way? Was it fun? Was it edifying? Did you learn things? Are you different now? Do you want to do it more? Do you what what are your impressions? Not to put words in your mouth, but let's hear what you have to say. Hi Krishna. Hi Krishna. That's a good note to um, start with. And I wanted to thank you for the last uh, few reading sessions that I've been able to attend. Um, I found that my absorption in Srimad Bhagavatam has increased when you've uh, heard it from your lotus mouth. And uh, I wanted to ask the question, how can we keep this up after you're gone? Um, when I read it alone, you know, I'll be honest, I, um, I'm not this much absorbed. Sometimes I... Um, especially if it's a dry philosophical uh, chapter that I'm, that I'm reading, then I do struggle to get by. Um, but here it's just, it is so nectarian um, in the association of debates and hearing it from, from, from you. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Well, I could say, as they say in Japan, Kochirokoso, same back to you. It, it's a 50 50 engagement. There, there has, if there's an audience that's actually interested, then it becomes compelling to, to, to hear and chant. It's both, it's both are, they are equally important, that is audience and speaker. So, same back to you, thank you. And Rupa Goswami says that we should organize around this principle of hearing. Tanama Rupa Charitari Sukirtananu Smrityo Kramena Rasanamana Sinioja Tishtan Vraje Tananuragi Jananugami he said, the essence of all advice is organize your life around this principle of hearing. So as an example, over the last couple of days, we took some long trips, you know, five hours driving yesterday, four and a half hours driving today, maybe five, because we went to, we went to uh, see um, Nitai Kripa Prabhu and Padma Malini, and then we went to Kroom Court, then we stopped at a program last night at, where was that place Chattenham. called? Chattenham? Chattenham. I'll just call it Chattenburg. <laughs> Chattenham. We went there, we did a program today. We went to see His Holiness Keshe Bharti Maharaj over in uh, Hyde by the English Channel. I'd never seen that before. In any case, here's my point. Uh, when I get in the car, I'm ready to hear and chant. I have a little speaker system, which you've seen before. I carry it in my bag when I go on trips anywhere. And then as soon as I get in, or soon after I get settled, and I know that we're you know, on a clear path, I just ask the residents of the car, the the, those who are driving, uh, would you like to hear a few verses? And uh, what are they going to say? No. Uh, <laughs> so when they say, OK. Yes, and usually, you know, devotees are all eager to hear. It's a nice place in the car. So I just take out my speaker, so I don't have to strain my voice, and everyone in the back seat can hear. And I'll take up where I left off. You can read in the dark with a, with a smartphone, which is an interesting f feature. You know, we didn't have that a couple decades ago. Everything we need to keep the vibration going is there. And, you know, every time I open my, uh, my app, 
for the Srimad Bhagavatam than I'm right where I left off last time. So then, you know, we, we read a lot. We read maybe about eight chapters of Bhagavatam in the last couple of days, but by just, you know, driving back and forth and listening. And there's a difference between driving and listening to the radio and, uh, and, or chatting or just nodding out, uh, hopefully not when you're driving, and hearing Bhagavatam for that long. You notice that you feel different and you make progress. So your life's complicated. You know, I know what, when we go to Govardhan, our main intention is to finish like three cantos or something like that. We'll make goals and then we'll divide it up into how many pages to read. And I do that every day because I figured out a long time ago that there's a finite number of pages in Prabhupada's books. It took me a while to figure that out. Because if you just look at it and go, wow, it's too big. I'll never be able to do this. But if you realize there's a finite number of pages, then if I just divide them up over 365, then I'll know how many to read. And once I know that, then uh, I'm pretty good for it to do that and keep track, you know, measure it. Everybody in here is good at that because otherwise you wouldn't have achieved as much as you have in your life. Everybody knows how to get up and hit a goal, right? So if you have those kind of if you have that kind of awareness that you take advantage of gaps like in the car or any other place and you also have a set number of pages that you're going to read every day. I also use, uh, when I'm reading from a paper book, I have little um, sticky flags and I, they're the kind that people use for reports. They can put it on a page, say sign here and stuff like that. So if you get one of those and you write the number of pages that you want to read every day with a Sharpie, and then when you open the book, you just move it that number of pages. How many pages should it be? You read every day, 10 pages. So you just move it 10 pages forward and mark it. And as I've said in a couple of classes, human like, humans like goals. That's why in my neighborhood, when I walk through, I see a basketball court there's a little hoop, and people are there all day long trying to take a ball and put it in the hoop. And I think, why? Because it's, it's there. <laughs> you put it in front of you, it's like, this in there. And they're like, how about from over here? Can I hit it from here? <laughs> and then you get to the football field, and there's a net, and there's a goal post. And, uh, you know, that's what we do as humans. So just do it for the Bhagavatam. Uh, read, you know, figure out what interval uh, or how... how Frequently, you want to finish the whole Bhagavatam, as an example. That's a nice project to have in your life. And if you say, in five years, I'd like to finish the Bhagavatam, then just read eight pages a day. And if you want to finish it in one year, you just read 41 pages a day. And you'll be finished a few days before the year ends with the whole Bhagavatam, and you can invite everybody over and have a party and feed everyone prasadam and celebrate. You know, I have devotees all the time calling me up and say, you know, hey, I just finished the Chaitanya Charita using the system. And it, it's a simple thing, but it really works. So Sankhya Purvaka, count it. And in the process of figuring out how to finish your pages every day, you can be inventive. And it does help if you have a group to read with. We noticed during the pandemic, 
that a lot of people got more time in our community to read with others and it changed their lives. You know, I was looking, I saw behind somebody that, that was sitting in front of their sets of Bhagavatams and I could see that there were some books missing. I said, oh, that's a good sign. You know what's not a good sign? If you go to somebody's house and they got the Bhagavatam there and you say, can I open one of these? And like the plastic is still on it. <laughs> or you open it and it goes crack like it's the first time anybody opened it. <laughs> and what's a good sign is it like, uh, where's the book? Uh, yeah, uh, Dalip has it. He's in the other room. And uh, you know, they're open. They're reading it. We get exposure to them. It's doable. You just have to, as Rupa Goswami says, make it a priority because it'll change everything in your life for the better if you have that going on. Thank you, Yeah. Yes. Just um, the reflections from your classes. Um, um, well, it wasn't just the, the class because it's so nicely delivered and it's very practical. I found it uh, quite thought-provoking that I can't stop ask, you know, I can't help but ask the questions. I still have one from the previous verse, and I'm trying not to ask it because of the time, but I'm, I might have to at some point. But it was also your bhajans that, that are just so, um, they're just so lovely, and they stayed in my head for the last week. They're just, like, really happy. Um, and I just thought of the Dolce times when devotees got together in small groups and discussed Bhagavatam, and it was just so simple. Uh, and then they did a bhajan. It was just, um, it's just very lovely. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Those little two came because they can't wait for your <laughs> Oh, I better, I better do it then. Um, I, I just, you brought a lot of energy to these classes. And I also uh, appreciate the fact that you have questions because uh, questions are the answer. We, we move forward by questions. In fact, I'm, I, I just wrote a book, it's almost going to be published soon, called Questions Are the Answer. And there are four questions to ask yourself every day in order to stay on track in life. Can I ask that question then? Yeah, you can ask it. But let me just say that, you know, a good hearing and chanting session or a series of sessions, it generates more questions than answers. So when we come out hungry that, oh yeah, I want to ask about this, I want to ask about that, that's where we want to be all the time. That's how we move forward is we're in that state. And if somebody says, do you have any questions? And you're like, not really. It's like with, I, I maybe gave this example the other night. If you're studying a musical instrument, you come to the teacher and you don't have any questions. It means you didn't practice. Because when you practice intensely, you're always going to run into a, a place where you go like, yeah, but what about this? And how does this go with that? Please ask your question. Yeah, it's about it's about the youth in our just in society or like our our society or just society in general. Because you read they read Bhagavatam and says the women are the problem, you know, they, they distract you from spiritual life, so then you enter I just wonder about that balance that you in the last session you had this like ten verses or forty verses from Bhagavad Gita that you can just use anywhere for defeat and the arguments. I wonder if you have any sort of uh, somewhere where, where there's a bit of training for our youth, where is that balance that when they enter a family life, that they, they have a bit of love for the family, they don't have that detachment, but at the same time, you know, there's that respect, because, um, yeah, it's easily, easily assumed, isn't it, you know, women are um, 
stopping us from the spiritual life. We've seen it, haven't we? I'm sorry. That's better to be um, out of line, perhaps, a little bit. But um, because, you know, you, you and um, Mataji are just such a wonderful uh, example of, of a Grihasta, successful Grihasta couple that are really lovely. And I just wonder if you have any formula that you can share for everyone here. Um, no, not at all. That's why we're here. Uh, first of all, I mean, Bhagavatam says, and again, it's categorical. We're talking about the material body in general and, and just how the material energy works. But a woman is the attractive feature. Woman attracts man. Man is attracted to woman, vice versa. But uh, Bhagavatam says more uh, encumbering and entangling than relationship with a woman is relationship with a man who's attached to women, which means it's the principle of attachment that's actually entangling. It's not the f form exactly itself, although one has to be careful, and that's what the Varnashram system does. And as far as having balance in a community, and uh, community takes um, dedication, and there's... Uh, members of the community have to come to maturity over time. Maturity is not something you can rush, just like if you're making a quiche. Of course, you made yours pretty fast this morning. Uh, if you're making, baking a pie, you can't rush it. You can't say, I want to do this in, uh, you know, it says you have to bake it for, how long do you have to bake a pie for? Okay, I want it in 10 minutes, so I'll turn the heat up really high, and that you'll just burn it. And so in a, you know, in a community, there, there has to be inculcation on a regular basis, intentionally, uh, that w we're in this together, and we, we want to help everyone, including especially the young people, uh, as they're growing up, to have opportunity to stay in contact with Krishna consciousness, which means relationships. And so, uh, it's a huge project, but it's doable. And a huge project means it, t it takes intention. It doesn't just happen automatically. There has to be inculcation and there has to be uh, programs so that everyone can be together and make sure that we're noticing how everyone's doing and adjusting if they're not doing well. She mentioned both of us. Do you want to say something? Yeah. In the, in the early days, in the early days of, of ISKCON, it was, uh, you know, it would take. <laughs> um, you know, they took the, these words of, you know, it's all attachment to a woman, uh, we were called tigresses, uh, you know, it was, uh, if a brahmachari put white on, you know, you know, it was, it took a little of adjustment for him to be able to come to Mangalarti, he did not feel, you know, like he had fall down, had a fall down. But, but now we have a lot of mature uh, grihasta couples. And 
in a, in a community, we need to support each other, and we need to support the, the young devotees who are getting married and, and mentor them. When anyone comes to Prabhu who wants blessings for marriage, the Grihasta vision team has a really good uh, premarital education. And so we always recommend that the devotees take that. And um, the counseling that they get, the education that they get, is very helpful. And then they have mentors that they can um, rely on, depend on, develop a relationship with, and uh, you know, have that support that, that, they, that they need. It's, there's a lot more of that these days um, than there was when you know reports that uh, you know disparaged that seemingly disparaged women and and you know when, when Prabhupada was asked about these things he would always say that he wasn't talking about the Vaishnavis he was talking about materialistic men and women not Vaishnavis he he held his daughters in the same esteem with the same love that he had for his sons. And so we've matured and we can help each other that way. But that it takes a village, as they say. And so if we all mentor the young devotees coming up, you're raising your children, you know, with these values, they're seeing it in your homes, you know. Um, you work together and that's what the kids see. And then you know, you support them as they come to that age of wanting to uh, get married, like that. Thank you so much. Uh, um, well, you came all the way from from state to hear and your presence here has, has certainly energized the whole atmosphere in the London community. Probably uh, the community in uh, UK whole. Uh, I mean, since you have come, the, the participation of the devotees in various activities has, has gone up. And even within my family, I can see a lot of difference uh, in the last one month. Uh, and also, I would like to thank you for the some of the very um, very effective um, principles that you have been sharing. So the other day, um, in one chanting session, you shared very, very uh, one principle which I have been practicing. And in the last five days, I can clearly see the effectiveness of, of that principle. And today, when Mataji asked, how do we continue uh, studying Srimad Bhagavatam going forward? Uh, and again, that I can see that in having having a goal, having an objective every day, and uh, with respect to certain number of pages, I, can, I mean that that already feels like it is going to be very effective. Uh, I'd like to ask one. So while studying Srimad Bhagavatam, especially with the uh, when with a goal in mind of X number of pages per day, um, I'm just a bit concerned about the absorption level. Um, so if you could please share some insights into how do we maintain the absorption level while keeping the goal um, in mind. Sure. Well, chanting one chapter of Bhagavad Gita a day, which we do every day, and also uh, reading a certain number of pages is a baseline. 
It's not the all in all. But there's this uh, directive, keep the transcendental vibration going. Everyone please say. This is a main principle, which I quoted. And I find that when you have this momentum that you're reading, let's say, I, I say, chant one chapter of Bhagavad Gita every day, at least the Sanskrit or the English or the English and the Sanskrit, at least. That's what we always say, at least. And the Bhagavatam, at least read these number of pages a day. So that's the baseline. And then after that, there's innumerable ways in which you can go deeper into the matter and should. For instance, uh, one way of hearing and chanting in a group, which is really uh, exciting and helpful, is that we follow a thread. So we take one purport, and as Prabhupada quotes a verse like Mamcha Yogi Abhicharina, he quoted earlier, Mamcha Yogi Abhicharina Bhakti Yogena Sevate Sagunan Samatitaitan. Then we would get the Bhagavad Gita out and read the purport there. And then from there, we'll see some other point. Yeah, what about that? It's from the Vedanta Sutra. And then we'll find that. And sometimes when we have a hearing and chanting session, we'll, um, we'll have 20 books out on the table. I mean, do we this? And many uh, hearing and chanting sessions when we do that, that's another way to do it. And another way to do it is to go, go through individually and look at a section that attracted your attention. I find this happens quite frequently, is let's just say you're chanting chapter 8 of the Bhagavad Gita every day for a month. And then you keep hearing this verse that goes, that, that verse is really helping me. I want to know more about it. So you look at it and you start studying the verse and you go deeply within it. And you start asking people about the verse and it, it'll branch out. So like... Those who do uh, athletics, they'll have a daily routine that they do. But then they do other things too to add on to, on to that. So it, it's a regimen and there are different aspects to it. But the baseline is keeping steady at a certain number. But of course, you know, it's just a suggestion. Any way that helps you to go deeply within the books or to stay fixed in them is beneficial. That's the main point, is exposure and keeping the transcendental vibration going. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yes, Prabhupada. Hare Krishna. Thank you so much, Maharaj. The last couple of days have been amazing. Is the mic on, Mother? You can just switch it on. Sorry. The last couple of days have been amazing, you know, with your association and Mataji. We are truly grateful for that. My question is uh, in continuation to Prabhu's question. So how do we introduce like Srimad Bhagavatam to the kids? We do read Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavad, so But introducing, uh, we do, do stories as well from Srimad Bhagavatam, but do we do in continuation or we just pick a story we read ourselves and then explain them? Because sometimes I feel the philosophy is too deep for them and they do get distracted. But at this age, what would be the best thing to do if you can just guide it? I would say uh, Corn Explorer, 80-20, just like Charles Schwab. So core means that parts that you know work really well and do that 80% of the time. 
and then explore 20% of the time and see, uh, you know, could we go into other areas? I find, and a lot of kids from ISV will tell you this, this that's our laboratory where we've been experimenting for about 20 years. And a lot of the kids will tell you that they didn't like sitting in class very much. They would go like, why do I have to sit in class? Can I go now? And then over time they said, for something switched in my head and I started to like it. And uh, I mean adults too. I, I watch adults who come to classes and they're kind of marginally there, but all of a sudden one day they just, their, their light goes on and they're like front row, <laughs> sitting up close. Next thing, you know, they want to make more vows. And you know, it's like, how, how can I move forward? That's the magic of the transcendental vibration. You know, the sages just sat and heard, and that's our process to hear, but it takes practice, like anything else. And if we sit and, and learn, and, and the, the kids get used to hearing, uh, if they don't get used to hearing, it's not like they're going to magically develop an attraction for it without the exposure. One other analogy that I th thought of frequently, especially at Govardhan Hill, because we do long, long sessions there, and then in the mornings we would go for the parikram of Govardhan and then come back and get ready at breakfast and do our hearing and chanting. And then walking around Govardhan Hill, it can be a very pleasant experience, but it can also, there can be sections that are a little bit uh, rougher than others. Like for some reason, people sometimes don't consider the fact that millions of people walk around the hill and they'll dump gravels along the path, you know, when they're doing construction. And there's no way around it. So it's like, okay, we're going to walk on gravel for about five minutes. I'm like, ow. And so when we're hearing the Bhagavatam, we're going, it's like a parikram. We finish, we start again. We finish, we start again. And some sections, like get to ninth canto, and there's all these names of kings leading up to Krishna. And, you know, some people are like, ah. They just walk on the gravel. You're going around. You can't skip over it. You just keep going. But you'll find after you, after you do that, you know, Krishna gives you an intelligence from within to appreciate it and see where it all fits together. And, and when everyone hears and, yes, when everyone hears and chants together, there's a, a, you actually, you become enlightened. It's amazing. You, you start to, uh, the devotees start to actually learn things just by hearing. It's not that you have to, take a test or anything like that, if you just submissively hear, you'll learn it all. Nirkula? Really little um, gives, at least what we've observed, is uh, when we make the Bhagavatam come alive for them, you know, make it fun. Uh, they get dressed up, they, they do dramas based on the stories. It comes alive, just like for us, if, we, if there's something in the Bhagavatam that really catches our attention, that we can relate to, that we can relate in our lives, that's that's the hook, right? So whatever the hook is for the for the kids, when they're real little like that, you know, they're great at learning the verses, even, you know, two, three years old. It's amazing. And then with the stories and dressing up and like that. And then as they get a little older, they start presenting the, the Bhagavatam. So they learn the stories that way. And, um, you know, they're presenting the Bhagavatam in Sankirtan, going door to door or, you know, in school or something like that. So, and, and every child's different, but there's almost always something that you, you can 
make fun. It's got to be fun. It's got to be fun, right? Kids want to play. Krishna played. That's all he did, right? <laughs> so they, they take after him like that. And so if you get them used to those things and make it fun, it's fun for everybody. That's that one thing that works. Also, going on Sankirtan and presenting the Bhagavatam, we've just noticed that that's, that's a place where um, young people, when they're able to go in and start telling people about what the Bhagavatam is and convincing them, I mean, it's the principles of works for everybody. When you, when you sell Prabhupada's books to others, you teach them and tell them they should take it, you start thinking about it more yourself. So... The two things always go together. Hare Krishna.